1: To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Nonprofit Foundation. I have Hannah Spinner. She's a PhD candidate at Harvard University, and we're going to talk about her work around CRISPR. So, Hannah, thanks for coming.
2: Yeah, no problem. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Yeah, well, tell me, um, you know, what's your research about? What are you focusing on?
2: So my research focuses right now on machine learning and protein design, and I have studied uh, mostly CRISPR protein and RNA over the past five years. So during my graduate work, I'm really trying to focus on incorporating machine learning into my research pipeline because I've noticed that uh, the work that I do, the work that gets me most excited, which is protein engineering and RNA engineering, takes so much time and so many resources. So trying to incorporate machine learning into that pipeline in order to make things happen faster.
1: So what are you trying to accomplish like in in plain terms? And then I want to ask you about a little bit of how CRISPR works.
2: Yeah, so I think in pretty plain terms, what I hope to accomplish for more the scientific community is reducing the amount of bench work and like pipetting that needs to go into research on proteins. And then kind of big picture stuff that I'm really passionate about are CRISPR proteins and the possibilities of genome editing in order to cure disease and climate applications as well with regard to agriculture and reducing just like for instance reducing the amount of pesticides needed or increasing drought tolerance in plants really like pretty big applications get me very excited, which is why I think I tend to focus my research more on foundational stuff that can have impacts on all of that sort of stuff.
1: Yeah. So as I understand, CRISPR allows you to go in and cut out, I guess, very specific targeted parts of uh, genomes of creatures.
2: Yes. Yeah. There's so many things that it can do. So I think at its core what CRISPR is a protein enzyme or like a little protein machine that uh, scientists can tell exactly where to target inside of the genome. So if, uh, for instance, you know that there's a certain change in someone's DNA that causes disease, uh, scientists can somewhat easily tell this CRISPR protein exactly where to go inside of that person's genome, whatever's causing that disease. And it can either, like you said, make a cut in the genome that gets repaired in some way inside of the cell so that it no longer causes that disease other things that it can do is like changing one base in the dna to another base in the dna without actually cutting or like integrating a new piece of dna that the scientist provides that can create a specific repair outcome so it's very very versatile but yeah at its core it's a protein that can go somewhere and do something which is uh amazingly powerful
1: well, how, um, you know, I've heard that, uh, you know, I guess CRISPR had to do like a double stranded break in the DNA in order to accomplish its work, but now, uh, can be a lot more targeted. And I guess, uh, you know, change the DNA without, without having to do that. Yeah. So how, how specific can you get? Like I would think there's a trade off, you know, the, the shorter the sequence of nucleotides that you want to change, the more likely it would be repeated in a given creature's genome. So how would you not have like off target effects?
2: Yes, yes, you're hitting on a very, very important issue in the field. (laughs) Great job. Uh, Yes, off-target effects are a big deal, like you said, um, and how do you make sure that you're not just disrupting uh, organisms' entire genome? And to that, I would say two things. The first one is maybe a little bit more controversial. The thing that I would say there is that uh, the reason I think people would be very concerned about that is like the deleterious effects that that could have on the organism's fitness. So for instance, if you're making a bunch of changes, to the genome, one worry would be that you're disrupting this thing's genome, all of a sudden the organism is going to develop terrible cancer or just have like really, really nasty impacts. And one thing I would say to that is absolutely, yes, completely true concern. But in animal studies that have used editing or like CRISPR from the organism as like it's a single cell or several cells. There actually isn't, to my knowledge at least, in like a ridiculous rate of those deleterious phenotypes. So yes, maybe the organism has edits throughout its genome, but maybe they're not as big of a deal as we think. So that's one thing I would say. And then the second thing that I would say, which is kind of the opposite of what I just said, is that I do think it's actually an issue that people aren't maybe taking as much concern as they should, especially if the plan maybe for the community is to be able to edit children's genomes or uh, embryos genomes, where the effects that they would have might be much more long lasting than editing one particular organ in an adult, um, which is what people are doing now. But if you try to edit something that's systemic throughout someone's entire body, so like a muscular disease or a disease that impacts like every single cell in the body, then I think the off targets become incredibly troubling or at least of incredible concern because in that way, you're really like... Like editing someone's entire system and the effects that each of those off targets will have in different organ systems and different cell types could be different and could lead to many bad things potentially. So I think there are there is research going on and research that I also have done that looks at that trade-off between uh, specificity and the actual ability of the molecule to edit. So you can think about that trade-off as like you can either edit really, really, really well. And like a really high percentage of things that you want to edit, get edited, but you then also edit in other places, like you mentioned, or you can try and edit really, really specifically just like, just in the place that you want to. But then usually the actual percent of things that you're able to edit goes down. So usually in these molecules um, and people who study them, there's kind of that trade-off between specificity and actual efficiency of the molecule. And so one thing that uh, I've tried to do in my research and others have as well is through either protein engineering or RNA engineering, really trying to select for molecules that are particularly good in both departments. Although it's a very hard ask, (laughs) trying to design experiments and design systems to select for things that are both really good at editing and really specific. What
1: about the... uh... You know, you make a change, you're going to have epigenetic changes. I don't know if the epigenetics would proceed in the same way. I mean, you're going to have different, possibly different metabolites and proteins and all kinds of stuff produced. You know, maybe the cell membrane composition is going to change. I don't know. There would be, be different antigen presentation or, I mean, a whole host of things could change. And I just wonder if anyone has a checklist on what to look for after you do a CRISPR edit instead of just, ah, we did it and we hope that everything works out, you know, or just... Yeah. Observing in a lab, oh, okay, the the organism seems to be okay, so I guess it's all right.
2: I think that there are certain things that people do, such as looking at the entire genome of an organism before and after and seeing what changes. So you would expect like the changes that you want to see are highly present. And then you would expect to see stuff elsewhere in the genome as well. Although I think that those methods still kind of leave something to be desired at their present moment. And then in terms of like mixtures of metabolites and small molecules inside of cells, I'm not sure if people look at the before and after of that because I think it is for the most part, assumed in practice that when you do an edit with a molecule like this, what you're changing is the DNA, which will lead to a change in protein production inside of the cell. But I do agree with you specifically the like antigen presentation that you mentioned where the protein, this new protein that you're introducing can definitely have an impact on the intercellular environment because when you're introducing these proteins, specifically like one of the most common CRISPR proteins that's used, which is called Cas9, it's from an organism that's known to be a human pathogen. Um, so because of that, sometimes people have noticed, and by sometimes, I mean, most of the time, people have noticed that when you put this foreign protein inside of the cell, there's some sort of immune response that happens. And that's actually kind of a big concern in the field. And also one of the reasons why when I was... Working um, in Jennifer Doudna's lab and Dave Savage's lab, the protein that I focused on was a protein called CasX, which is not from a human pathogen. So then maybe those concerns wouldn't be as large, although we never tested it directly.
1: Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives in our world. Even though this podcast gets again, is there uh, an ethics committee or is, it? I mean, are people downplaying the knock-on effects you think? Uh, what, you know, you remember earlier, like a few minutes ago, you made a statement and then you made kind of the yeah. the contrary <laughs> statement. So like, what do you observe being an insider? You know, like, do you think that it's, these all these possible uh, knock-on effects are being addressed or so they're like, eh, whatever?
2: Yeah, so I think that uh, in the field, I think that there's some disagreement between how big of a deal these off-target effects are. I think uh, some people who have particularly loud voices have said that it's a solved problem and that it's not something that people should be concerned about. And then there's also other people in the field who think that it is definitely a concern and something that we should be looking into. Uh, Personally, where I stand is the more information we have about something, the better. And there are, I don't know, I think there's no shortage of people working on these sort of issues. And uh, if there was more attention directed towards methods of really easily capturing exactly where in the genome something edits that can be actually like pulled out from an organism instead of like a bunch of cells in a dish. Because also something to keep in mind is that sometimes these experiments that are done in the lab are done in, uh, human cells that have been immortalized so that they can reproduce and reproduce. And so you get like a plate that just has a bunch of cells that can continue to grow. And it's really nice for doing experiments because then you can have a somewhat consistent cell population that you can do many experiments on and get many different replicates of so that you make sure your results are robust. And because of that, you have access to like millions and millions of cells that you can do these things on. But if you think about a human or a mouse where you're actually doing the experiment instead of then you have much less cells that you can access and get data from. So if you edit someone's organ or a mouse's organ and you want to take a snapshot of that you may not have millions and millions of cells to look at for these off targets you may only have like a few thousand but that yeah that's maybe a bit more of a nuanced argument
1: How do you know what I mean? So, okay. So if I have 200 something cell types in my body, let's say I have cystic fibrosis and you're able to, you know, change the nucleotide that's messed up. So, but you inject it into me. Okay. Maybe it changes my blood cells. Maybe it changes my lung cells. I don't know, but how do you make sure it spreads to all the cell types in my body? What if, uh, I don't know, what are the countervailing forces that stop it? Or, you know, does it cause temporarily as maybe it's taking hold some terrible, uh, immune response like what what's been observed if if this has been done let's say to mice like
2: So yeah so delivery is a huge a huge deal in the field because yeah if you have a certain disease like cystic fibrosis that mostly impacts one particular organ system i.e. the lungs and people usually die of something related to that or their like immune system as a whole how do you make sure that you're both impacting that system as well as other systems in the body that it targets. And I think the main answer that people have been pursuing in this very moment is viral delivery of DNA that will encode the CRISPR protein and RNA that will then do the work. So instead of, because if you imagine like these tools are a protein and a piece of RNA that come together and do work. So one way of delivering these molecules potentially is to, in a lab, purify the protein, purify the RNA, couple them together and inject that into people. Um, And you can imagine that that maybe isn't the best solution, at least right now, because if you inject some random protein and some random RNA into someone's system, there's a strong likelihood that those molecules will, yeah, create a big immune response and get destroyed. And in the process also probably cause the person a lot of issues. So one thing that scientists have done, uh, which is pretty uh, clinically mature because it's done with other gene editing technologies and other technologies, also, is create a piece of DNA that encodes the protein and encodes the RNA so that the person's cells, like once it's in the cellular environment, then and only then will actually make the molecule that can go into the person's DNA and make the changes. And these viruses, like they're viruses that infect humans.
0: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes
2: and because of that they you can engineer them to infect certain cell types more than other cell types so there's different kinds of these viruses that will preferentially infect certain kinds of cells and with that you can get some level of specificity for organ systems that you want to target but then yeah there's a similar issue there of specificity where it's like okay well you have these viruses that can infect certain cells with a high probability But every, well, not everything in nature, but most things in nature are not like black and white. It's not like it only infects these things and does not ever infect these other things. So there will be some distribution of viruses that are able to infect other cell types or that do just randomly. So yeah, that is a pretty big issue. And then in terms of what organ systems it can or cannot access, if you're using this viral system or something, there are certain things on the outside of cells that it like can or cannot bind to and then can or cannot enter the actual cell. Um, And then there's other systems like, for instance, the brain, that it's really hard to get something across this barrier inside of people's bodies called the blood brain barrier, where like you mentioned, if you inject something into someone, like into their vein, then it's in their bloodstream. And something that's in the bloodstream can spread to certain other organs in the body, but specifically, at least typically, not the brain. Um, so you can't expect to, like, inject someone's arm vein and get it to the brain easily.
1: Yeah, but in a, for a given CRISPR intervention, though, I mean, which cells need to be changed and which not? Is it so okay? It, really depends, you know, yeah, the... it
2: depends on the disease. So it really depends on the disease. So if you think about like heritable blindness, for instance, if someone is blind because their eyes cannot produce a certain protein or the protein that it does produce doesn't work well, then you would really need to edit the eye. And then once you edit the eye, then the person can see again and that's that. But uh, for an example, like you mentioned, like cystic fibrosis, where it impacts uh, multiple organ systems or diseases like progeria, which also impact like every cell in the person's body, then yeah, you need like a systemic delivery system that can actually reach everything. And that is really hard and something that scientists are actively working on.
1: Okay, so some of the first conditions you think that'll be amenable to CRISPR are the ones that are very tissue specific.
2: Yeah. So currently, um, there are clinical trials happening on, uh, diseases of the blood. So you can take someone's bone marrow edit the bone marrow, put it back in the person. And then that person will create good blood <laughs> and clinical trials are happening for those diseases right now. And they're quite successful. And then I, I don't actually know whether or not the heritable blindness are in clinical trials or about to be in clinical trials, but that's also something that's very, very in the near future. But then, yeah, something that's more systemic, I think is going to be a little bit farther away in this timeline. Okay.
1: What are are some of the innovations on CRISPR? What's new and, uh, you know, what's what's better about it or improved?
2: Yeah. So there have been a lot of innovations that have happened since uh, the kind of mega explosion that happened in 2012. I mean, people have been working on these proteins for a long time, even before the paper out of Jennifer Doudna's lab in 2012. But I think that paper i think the like particular innovation that happened in that paper was simplifying the system into something that uh, almost anyone could use which is why then in 2013 like pretty shortly after a group at uh, at in boston published uh, the first human editing that was happening inside of human cells because the system was like so modular and so easy to use and since then there have been a ton of innovations that have happened so like you mentioned at the very beginning CRISPR proteins can make double-stranded breaks inside of DNA, which means that they can double, like DNA is double-stranded and the CRISPR protein that most people study and think about or many people study and think about can make breaks in both strands and then that will be repaired in some way and get some outcome. But I think some really big innovations that have happened are creating CRISPR proteins that are quote-unquote dead. So that's usually how people refer to them as like dead Cas9 or dead CasX or whatever, because they're active sites that actually perform the breaking of the DNA can be inactivated pretty easily. And uh, once that happens, then they just bind to the DNA. So usually they would bind and cut, but then once you inactivate these active sites, now you just bind and sit there. And what is really interesting about that is now you can think about adding other domains or other pieces of other proteins onto that scaffold that can do other jobs inside of the cell instead of just simply being like a jackhammer that can destroy stuff. So instead what people have done is put on domains that can like, You mentioned also epigenetics. So they can put on different domains that can serve as activators for genes that can upregulate certain proteins inside of the cell. And conversely, they can add repressors on that can deactivate certain genes. And also most of the time, Cas9 itself is such a strong binder that you can deactivate a gene just by (laughs) binding Cas9 there. And then there's been other massive innovations also from groups in Boston, specifically Alexis Kumar, uh, put a deaminator domain onto the protein that then can do something called base editing. So instead of just cutting or instead of just repressing or whatever, you can actually perform chemistry that will turn one base into another base through a combination of this domain that you can put on. And then also the cells repair mechanism when it sees that base that's been changed. And then Another thing that has happened very recently is something called prime editing, where you can create, you can attach a different domain onto it called a reverse transcriptase. And then you can attach another piece of RNA onto the guide that can serve as a repair template. So now what you can do is have your CRISPR protein this time that maybe cuts one strand or no strands, and you can target that to a specific location that you want to repair in a very specific way, and then encode that very specific repair that you want to make onto the guide RNA. And then you can put, throw all of that stuff into cells. Um, and with some percentage of the time, it works perfectly and repairs or changes the DNA in the exactly the way that you want to. And as far as innovations that are upcoming, I personally don't know of any, you know, hot goss in the field of like new platform technologies that will really provide a new platform such as base editing or prime editing. But I do know some cool stuff that is happening in terms of engineering these molecules. Um, So for instance, one group at Berkeley Uh, that I did my undergrad research in, Dave Savage's group is working on minimizing the size of CRISPR proteins. So they uh, published recently their protein engineering efforts in order to shrink Cas9 to the smallest size possible. And they were able to get DNA binding protein from the original SAP the original size of around 1,368 amino acids down to like 850, which is really impressive because you can think about the amount of, I mean, like any any resource inside of a cell, if you can essentially like cut it in half or take a third of it off, that's a pretty big advantage over the other system where now the protein is maybe easier to produce or less costly to make inside of a lab, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Are people trying to turn it into a verb CRISPR uh, coding regions of DNA or more regulatory regions? Has anyone tried both? And, you know, any difference in the knock-on effects?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that for the most part, people are focused on coding regions of the genome because that is the part of the genome that will make the protein and later be like turned into the protein. Um, But there are actually, yeah, definitely some things happening with the regulatory regions DNA as well. So I believe that the thing I mentioned, the clinical trial that's happening with uh, the blood diseases, sickle cell and beta thalassemia, uh, what they're actually doing. And I am, Not 110% confident about this because it's been a while since I read the documentation on it, but I'm pretty sure what they're doing is they are upregulating a different gene inside of cells that can create a different form of hemoglobin that works really well and can then uh, rid them of their disease. Because in those diseases, what is wrong is uh, this certain type of hemoglobin has a mutation that no longer makes it able to bind oxygen as well. But what they're able to do is upregulate this other type of hemoglobin called uh, fetal hemoglobin because fetuses produce it. It's actually very cool. So fetuses produce this different kind of hemoglobin that can sequester oxygen and bind it tighter than like our regular hemoglobin because when babies are in the womb, the oxygen that they have access to is from the blood that flows through the placenta. So they're actually able to bind oxygen tighter than the mother's hemoglobin and therefore can get oxygen. So the idea is in adults, we still have that gene and we still have that ability. It's just been turned off as we've grown up. So what what those scientists are able to do is actually um, activate that gene again, and then uh, you can restore that person's ability to produce hemoglobin, which is very cool. So I think people are doing both, but I think in labs and in research, it's more common to edit the coding region, at least in my experience.
1: What about uh, regions that may be methylated and inaccessible, maybe dangerous to do this, but, you know, to open them up, modify them, you know, CRISPR them, and then let them remethylate and they go, you know, I I don't know if there's any point in doing that because they're probably silenced, but any thoughts there?
2: There are, uh, so, like you mentioned, DNA can get methylated. And usually that leads to the DNA being silenced and no longer being produced. But one thing that people have done is like I mentioned with like base editing and other technologies where you have a dead version of the protein, you can actually put a demethylase onto the protein that can then go and demethylate the DNA and like, you know, kick off all the methyl groups that are on there and then potentially activate uh, that piece of DNA which is uh, pretty cool. Yeah, the rate at which it gets re-methylated, I'm not super sure because different parts of the genome are regulated in different ways in terms of whether it's methylated or not. So yeah, you could imagine a system where the thing that's actually telling that piece of DNA to get methylated, like neighboring methylation, does not get changed. And then therefore you don't create a change.
1: Let's say I took the human genome and I labeled nucleotides, you know, like one to 3.2 billion. And let's say I picked a stretch, I don't know, 1,000 to uh, 1,100, that may constitute a gene, but could, you know, let's say numbers 1,000 to 1,025, and then another part of the, you know, later on part of the sequence can be combined through, you know, stem loops in transcription to make other genes. So what I mean is, for a given stretch of nucleotides, is it only one gene that Hmm. gets transcribed from those set of nucleotides, or can bits of it be used in combination to create Hmm. other genes? And if so, yeah, yeah. what would be the effects of CRISPR activation?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great question. Um, so that is much more common in viruses than it is in humans. So it may exist in humans, although not to my knowledge that uh, same stretches of the genome can encode different things. But it is common in viruses because viruses are wild and don't have any rules. So in viruses, sometimes they can even like uh, transcribe genes in one direction and then in the other direction and create two different proteins, which is amazing but yes to your point if that did exist in humans then yeah that would be something that people would have to be mindful about because then you can like with a simple metaphor of like a recipe if you have beans in multiple recipes and then you change what a bean is it's definitely going to impact all the other recipes um so yeah that would definitely be something that people would have to worry about although i don't know if that actually exists in the human genome or not but yeah if people were trying to edit viruses then they maybe would have to think about that a little bit more
1: but i thought that don't know maybe transposons or so So is it, you know, one stretch of nucleotides equals one gene, there's that fidelity? Or I thought there's transposons and that there are overlaps and things that can occur. But I guess if we don't know, we don't know.
2: Well, yes. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I can't speak for the scientific community as a whole. Also, yeah, transposons are an issue, although I'm not, I mean, an issue insofar as like, if you have a active transposon inside of your genome that is hopping around to every which place that you could imagine. <laughs> then yeah, if you edit that particular stretch, then as it hops, that particular mutation that you create will hop as well. But I don't know if people are trying to change transposable elements inside of the human genome, because I don't know how many diseases it causes or what the impacts of mutating that would be. But I also don't know how many active transposons are in the human genome, because yeah, those, those things I know are much more active in plants and uh, more active in bacteria as well.
1: Okay, so what's, um I don't know, what do you think is possible in the next couple of years with CRISPR technology and what's, what's gonna be a lot further afield?
2: Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. Yes, I think so many things, this is a blanket statement, but I think so many things are possible with CRISPR at this very moment that like, yes, before I mentioned, there's a lot of people working on this, but at the same time, there's so many things. There are so many genetic diseases. I have no idea how many there are off the top of my head, but there are so many genetic diseases that are amenable to gene editing that can then cure the patient. So I think in the next few years, we're gonna see a lot more clinical trials for people using like pretty basic CRISPR technology, meaning that more like Jackhammer style, of just targeting the protein to a specific place, creating a double strand of break that repair then, inactivating that gene and then it's no longer causing the disease. So I think over the next few years, we're gonna see a lot more clinical trials that are happening with that technology. And then I would also say, I think there's gonna be a ton more companies created also around uh, this technology because right now there's a few big players, a lot of medium players and a lot of small players. (laughs) And I think over time, the amount of companies that are in this space and especially the amount of companies that have money in this space is just gonna grow massively. Uh, I don't know how in tune you are with like the venture capital system that is happening right now. But I think more and more, there's a lot more VC funds that are being created and funded that focus on really new technology coming out of academic labs because they've seen how successful and profitable it can be. So I think that is also going to continue to increase I bet that there's gonna be some good progress made too in terms of agriculture and uh, editing plant genes over the next years, although that might be slower because plants take a lot more time to grow than like bacteria inside of a lab or human cells inside of a lab or even mice. And then in terms of like longer term things that will happen, I I don't know. I feel like there is probably gonna be some more like revolutionary technology developments that either makes these proteins really different or much more effective or much more specific or what have you. And in terms of applications, I am not super sure what other like pra- maybe more practical applications there will be besides like disease and agriculture I think that probably people will start to tinker more with things that are maybe more like desi- quote unquote desirable traits versus um, like disease traits, because There's also, I mean, at least in terms of some diseases, like whether or not it's actually a disease or not is definitely up for debate. So I think in terms of the ethics, hopefully at least that will become more clear in terms of what is actually a disease that people would want cured versus what is a disease that most people. Like able bodied people think, yes, this should be cured because it's different than me, therefore it's bad. So, I, I don't know. I feel like those conversations and those technologies will hopefully crystallize a bit <laughs> in the short term and the long term. That was kind of a rambly answer.
1: No, no, I understand what you mean. Some, you know, right. What's uh, just a nice to have or I want to improve myself to get an edge versus this affects me really negatively and it's a, a real disease that yeah. you know, I want to cure and get rid of if possible. Right.
2: Right, absolutely. Yeah. And I think too, like over time, things that there exist current treatments for, for instance, like diseases where someone has way too much cholesterol in their blood and then they're at greater risk for heart attack or whatever, where certain drugs and like small molecule drugs exist to treat that disease. For instance, like people can take statins in order to decrease the amount of cholesterol in their blood. But I think there will also be a shift towards uh, genetic changes that you can make that will alter that as well. But I think those are going to come later. Because there are other diseases that don't have any treatment at all that if can be treated with a drug, that drug then has a different, a different like identity within the, system of the FDA and has different rules related to whether or not it can be passed, approved. And so I think like as more of the diseases that either impact a very small number of people or the quality of life is absolutely terrible, even on the best medications that exist currently, as more and more of those diseases get treatable with CRISPR and approved with CRISPR. I think then more diseases will come online that um, have okay therapies right now or impact a ton of people and then the symptoms like maybe aren't as bad.
1: Okay. Well, very good. Well, Hannah, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go?
2: That's a great question. Where can they go? I don't really have a website. Or anything like that. I am on LinkedIn with my name, Hannah Spinner. I also have a Twitter at Bell, B E L L E, Spinner. And also, my email address is hspinner at g.harvard.edu. If people would just want to directly reach out via email, I'm pretty responsive on all of those platforms. So, if anyone wants to reach out about any of these topics or others like protein engineering and machine learning, or, you know, general life things, especially like being a woman in person, being a non-binary person in STEM. um, I can speak much more to the second one, although I spent a while being a woman in STEM and also being a queer person in STEM, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I am here. Any and all uh, conversation topics I am, I'm down to have.
1: Okay, excellent. Well, great. Well, thank you for coming on. And it's nice to see someone that's like super excited about their work. It's somewhat rare. So thank you for coming.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Science is a great place to be. Thank you so much for hosting me.
0: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius podcast with Richard Jacobs.